Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. After uh, a couple of weeks off, so I had a little bit of time to study, we're going to be back into Mark's Gospel. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. It's going to be up here on the screen, and it'll be in your booklets, and of course you can follow along in your Bible. Um, I will be uh, teaching out of the New International Version this morning, but you can follow along in whatever uh, version. So hear now the word of the Sovereign Lord. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house, did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. How many of y'all think that's a hard text? Let's be honest. I mean, where, where's meek and mild Jesus in that story? We, we, the last three weeks, had looked in the earlier part of Mark 7, and it's very clear, right? The Pharisees are the bad guys. The Pharisees are saying the Gentiles and all the people are unclean. They're trying to stick to all of these old ways of thinking, and Jesus is the hero who's declaring, no, it's not that way. And in fact, the ceremonial law is fulfilled. The moral law is still in effect, but, but that God is a God of grace. And cleanness is something that are, uh, is a matter of our heart being purified. And uncleanness is what rises out of our heart, not these external things. And then there's this story. And there's this woman with a need and as you hear, she is there, and she has a daughter who's being possessed by a demon. Let's be honest, what do we expect the verse to say? And Jesus reached out, and he hugged her, and he did all this. And instead, he starts seeming to call her a dog. What in the world is going on in this text? I don't know, so I'm going to call Jer up front now, and he is going to come. No. Now, we're, we're going to dig in, and I hope this will be encouraging as we dig through God's Word and what it means. So let's, let's dive in, because we're at the beginning of another hinge point. Jesus is now moving into Gentile territory, and for a few weeks in a row, we're going to see Jesus actually interacting with Gentiles. So it begins here. Jesus here is retiring to Tyre. He is leaving and going to the region of Tyre. And notice in verse 24, after all this conflict he's been having with the Pharisees and the leaders among God's people in Israel, 
the, the people that ought to be receiving him as the Messiah, that ought to understand who he is, they've been firmly rejecting him and causing problems. And so he leaves and he goes to the area of Tyre, which is a Gentile region. It's what we know as Lebanon today. It's a little bit north and west of where he had been in Galilee. And he gets up there and he's going up and he's trying to stay hidden. This is probably another time, as we've seen over and over and over again in Mark's gospel, Jesus keeps pulling away from the crowds. He goes off to be either by himself or just with his disciples so that they can all rest. We have seen this from the very first chapter in Mark's gospel over and over again where he does that and he wants to be alone and oftentimes he's also withdrawing because he's trying to describe to disciples and to teach them and to explain them because you remember when he went over what was clean and what was unclean what was the disciples response we we don't get it lord we're just as confused as we've been all along the disciples in this gospel have basically understood nothing Jesus has said until he gets off to explain it. They've never understood his parables. And so he's off and he's trying to teach them and he's trying to be alone. However, if you've been following this movie that we know as Mark's gospel, what can we guess is going to happen when Jesus tries to keep it secret that he's gone somewhere? It's not going to be secret. Everybody's going to find out. And actually, back in Mark chapter 3, verse 8, we're told specifically that people from Tyre and Sidon had gone down to see about Jesus. There are Jews from the area, and apparently some of the Jews from Tyre and Sidon had gone down to see Jesus and to see his ministry and see what was going on. So when he gets up there and he's trying to keep it secret, word gets out. And so instead of being able to rest and instead of being able to teach uh, his disciples, he immediately gets interrupted. And in this case, it's not, not surprising, we've seen this multiple times, it's a person who is coming to Jesus, and she doesn't appear to be coming to get teaching, she appears to be coming because she has a need. Her need is, I have a daughter, and my daughter is demonized. My daughter is being possessed by an evil spirit, and the spirit is causing all kinds of problems for her. And we are told, you know, so, so that's what we would see. And again, we might normally think that, well, Jesus would just speak a word here. We've seen it many, many times where he's driven demons out and done it. But then in verse 26, Mark starts to tell us a little bit more about the woman. And what he tells her is that she is a Greek. Now, when in, in ancient times, for Jews, there were basically two types of people. There were Jews and there were Greeks. Greek does not mean that she's literally Greek in the sense of getting her ancestry from Greece. It means she's a Gentile. The word is actually Hellene, Hellenistic, the, the word Greek. But to the Jews, that just meant Gentile. It meant you are not part of us. But what's interesting in this, in this verse is the woman is very much presented as an unclean person in an unclean land. So we've just seen Jesus teaching us on clean versus unclean. And this woman is the personification of what the Jews would consider unclean. Now why I say that? We're in Tyre and Sidon. In the Old Testament, there's a very famous person from the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's a woman. Her name is Jezebel. Okay, so she is the, you know, she is the prototype of what it means to be a wicked woman in the Old Testament, and she is from this area, and this is where this woman has come from. This is where her ancestry is from. Furthermore, Tyre and Sidon appear a lot in the Old Testament, and it's never in a good way. 
It's always bad. Ezekiel spends three chapters, Ezekiel 26 to 28, rebuking Tyre and Sidon for their wealth and their abuse of power. They think that they are privileged. They have money. They have power. They oftentimes could withstand invaders. Um, so they, they really kind of think there's something, and Ezekiel rebukes them in Ezekiel 26 to 28. Zechariah also does in Zechariah chapter 9. And it wasn't just, you might say, well, that was Ezekiel. That was, you know, 600 years before when we're reading about. Well, in much more current times, uh, there, there's the, the book that's not in the Scripture, but it's known as the Maccabees, that tells the story of when the Greeks were trying to force the Jews to quit being Jewish and to accept Greek ways and customs and religion. And we're told the people of Tyre and Sidon sided with the Greeks and tried to force Israel to give up their faith. This was in much more recent times. And in fact, Josephus, who writes after Jesus and shortly after the uh, Gospel of Mark would have been written, Josephus, who's writing around the time of the Roman War in 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem falling, he wrote and said that the people of Tyre were notoriously our bitterest enemies. That's it. When you want to list our enemies, Tyre goes right to the top. So this woman in ancient Jewish society, she's a, a woman, she's a Gentile, she is a Phoenician from Tyre and Sidon, the ancient enemies of Israel. So one of the commentators wrote this, and I thought it was pretty interesting. His name's James Edwards. He wrote, verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. She's a woman a Greek Gentile, from infamous pagans of Syrian Phoenicia. Even Levi the tax collector must have raised his eyebrows at this woman who has the pluck to beg Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Okay, get what he's saying. Matthew, Levi, might say, well, look, I know you forgave me and I'm a tax collector, but I mean, geez, there's got to be some limits, right? I mean, and clearly she's the other side of those limits. She's got everything against her. But if we've read the Gospels, we would say, well, maybe Matthew would think that way, but Jesus surely wouldn't. And in fact, if you go back to the Gospels, we're told in the day that he gave his opening sermon in Nazareth, in his hometown in Luke chapter 4, when the people are not responding to who he is, Jesus says, let me explain the way God works. And in Luke 4, 25 and 26, he says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So Jesus had already brought up somebody that was very much like this. A lot of scholars think this woman may be a widow because there's no mention of her husband at all. So, and if she is, then it's like, well, Elijah was sent to a widow in Tyre and Sidon who had great needs and he ministered to her. Jesus is obviously aware of this because on the day of his first sermon, he brought that specific text up. So surely one would expect that Jesus, who has been so compassionate to so many, um, would receive this woman. Jesus, who had taught and said, don't you understand how God worked through Elisha, would receive this woman. Jesus, who jest, I mean, the, the words are still ringing in our ear as you're reading through Mark 7, look, un 
cleanness is not about your background and outside and who you've come into contact with. It's the state of your heart that determines whether you're clean or unclean. Surely none of this external stuff is going to matter to Jesus. We're expecting he's going to say, the demon is cast out of your daughter. So here comes the plot twist. Because the woman says this to Jesus, and then this is where Jesus says, first let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Who does Jesus seem to be comparing her to? Don't get religious. Who's he comparing her to? A dog. She's not the child in this parable. She's a dog. Now, you might think, well, Probably in the ancient world, dogs were considered, that was probably a good thing. No, it was not a good thing. They were considered even worse than we might think of them as being today. And in fact, the rabbis, the Pharisees had a saying, the peoples of the world are like dogs. Has Jesus changed his mind? Is Jesus now a Pharisee? See, that's not what's happening in the text, but Mark wants us to wrestle with this. Jesus is using a parable here. This is a parable. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dog. So he's using another parable, and in the parable, the children are the people of Israel. Okay, They are the children of God, and Jesus was sent to them first, not to the Gentiles. And this is clear. This is clear in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, we read this about the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. The Lord says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So when the Messiah comes, God says, you're going to restore Israel but that's too small a thing. I'm also, along with you doing that, the Gentiles are going to get opened up. But notice, first you're going to Israel, and then secondly, you are going to go uh, to the Gentiles. And this is not just a thing with Jesus. I mean, if you look in, in his ministry, he very, very rarely interacts with Gentiles. This is about the only time he actually goes into Gentile territory. I mean, in other words, Jesus didn't get on a boat and go to Rome or to Athens. He stayed within Israel. And we see the same thing actually within the epistles. So for example, in Acts chapter 13, if you look at, uh, we're, I'm going to throw up two verses on the screen here, um, if you can do that. Yeah, Acts 13, 46 and 47 and Romans 116. Here's two examples. Not listen, but because we're ministering in the name of Messiah, that same text applies to us. We are going to take the light to the Gentiles. Who in here is glad that that is the case? Man, I am really glad. Really glad. Paul says the same thing in Romans 116. This is a very famous verse we quote all the time, but we don't think about the fullness of it. I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So there is this priority that is going on, and it continued even among the apostles. And so Jesus has given this parable, and he's in essence saying the bread of his power and work is for the children. It's for Israel, 
and not for the family dogs around the dinner table. Now, Jesus does use the word that is used for family dogs, the little house pets is the one he uses. And he's saying, so it's, it's not there. But this still leaves us with a huge problem. Is this, I mean, how many people have understood what Jesus has said in the Gospels? I mean, it's been an exercise in nobody getting what he's saying, right? I mean, even the apostles constantly aren't understanding. Is this Syrophoenician woman going to understand this? And even worse, if she does, what is it that she understands? Oh, I'm a dog. I mean, if she understands that, surely she is going to get up and go out in a huff. Right? Be honest. What would you do? What if you came to somebody for help and they said, you're a dog? I would probably end up in jail for what I did to them afterwards, right? Let's be honest. So what is happening here? What is going on? How is this woman going to respond? Is she going to respond with pride or humility? Is she going to respond with rejection or faith? And the amazing thing in the gospel, don't miss this. This is so huge. The woman comes back and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall off the table. You don't have to not feed the children. Just crumbs falling down is enough. Now, please don't miss this. First person in the gospel to get a parable. If I were making the TV show The Chosen, at this moment, Jesus would stop and look at all the disciples. Like, seriously, you've been walking with me for two years and gotten nada. You haven't understood a thing I have said. This woman walks in. I speak the hardest parable I have spoken to anybody, and she gets it. Right off, she gets it. Be like the Syrophoenician woman. Because she is the first one to understand the parable. And she's not just heard it, she's able to apply it. Okay, Lord, yes, I get it. I'm the dog. But the little family pets, they get the food. That's what they're there for. They're licking the food up off the floor. And that's all I'm asking you. You don't have to get up. You don't have to stop your rest. You don't have to stop teaching the disciples. You have enough authority. It's just bread off of the table. You can just think the word and it will be done. Do you understand two things here? This is first off a humble response. If she's not humble, the response is, what do, you, what do you mean calling me a dog? I mean, I may not be a Jew, but I'm not a dog. I'm a human being. How can you possibly say this to me? But she accepts her role in that parable. Pride will not accept what God says about that. Pride rejects God's word of truth regarding our position. I don't like being compared to a dog. But of all the things, this this morning, my quiet time as I'm reading through the Bible happened to be in Jeremiah 17 to 19. In Jeremiah 18, God says, Jeremiah, go to the potter and watch him. Are you not clay? Don't call me clay. I'm not some pot. 
Don't you know who I am? A person who's not going to receive, apparently. See, our pride does not like that. But this woman has the insight to say, no, I recognize I cannot save myself. I cannot save my daughter. I am helpless. And what you say, I will receive, and I will do it in humility. But see, so much of Israel, when Jesus tells the Pharisees they're dead bones, they're furious. When he compares them to the blind, we're not blind. And Jesus says, if you admitted you were blind, you wouldn't be. But because you claim you're not, you're still in your blindness. When Jesus says that we are spiritual harlots, unfaithful. I mean, go back and read the prophets over and over and over again, and Israel does not want to hear. because, And this is not them. We don't want to hear the humbling word of God. We struggle with this. But this woman, thanks be to God for this woman. She simply says, you say I'm a dog under the table. I agree. I cannot do anything on my own. I'm just asking for crumbs. That's all I'm asking for, Lord. And this is a position of humility. She is, in fact, a paragon of humility, understanding and embracing her true position before Jesus, and she's recognizing, I have no right to the mercy of God. How many of us in here deserve grace? If you deserve it, it wouldn't be grace. If you deserve it, it's not mercy. But see, we want to deserve it. We want to make it that I've done something, anything, the smallest thing. The church has struggled with the gospel down through the ages because we always want to add in something that I do. Well, God does most of it. But there's just this little thing. So maybe I'm not the child, but I mean, I'm not quite the dog either. But see, you know, this woman says, no, no, I understand. I know my position. I have no right to claim grace. And I accept that. And because of that, she receives grace. So notice the second thing is then it moves on because it's a faith-filled response. She accepts her position, but see, if she was just humble, she could have said, okay, I'm a dog, and walk out. But she doesn't. She doesn't. She goes, okay, Lord, yes, I'm a dog. I, I have no purchase, but, Lord, I've seen the dogs. The crumbs fall off the table. That's all I'm asking for. She presses back. She, she pushes forward. She asks for grace and mercy. It's a brilliant reply that displays not only humility, but a deep faith. Jesus, you don't need to take anything from anybody else to be able to do what I'm asking you to do. You saving me, you saving my daughter is not going to prevent you from saving anyone else. I understand. I know who the Lord of the parable is. I get this. And so I'm going to continue uh, pressing back. For you, driving out a demon is nothing more than a crumb falling off of a table. It takes nothing but just your thought, and it will be done. 
Now, Mark doesn't tell us, because Mark likes to let us wrestle with these things, okay? It's the shortest gospel. We wrestle. But Matthew actually tells us that Jesus said another phrase to the woman. Jesus actually looked at her in Matthew 15, 28, and said, woman, you have faith-filled, are willing to be like the woman and say, yes, Lord, but. Yes, Lord, but. That but is not a lack of faith. It is faith. It is pressing in. Uh, Charles Spurgeon actually preached on this. I wanted to look it up this week. I didn't get a chance, but I know he preached a sermon on this woman and said, some of y'all are sitting here and you're wondering, am I elect? Am I not elect? He said, be the Syrophoenician woman. All I'm looking for, Lord, is crumbs off the table. I don't have to figure all this out. I am here and I'm looking for crumbs off the table. Cling to God in faith. So Faith is not something that sits and wallows, but it persists in clinging to God. It's willing to press God to intervene and save. And so this woman, now now get this picture. Jesus has been dealing with the Pharisees who claim to be Jews of Jews, the, the heirs of God's covenant promises. But this woman is the one who's actually like Jacob. You remember in in Genesis 32, Jacob meets the angel of the Lord and he wrestles with him all night long. And you remember the angel strikes him on the hip and Jacob is limping around, but he will not let go of the angel. The angel's like, let go of me. And Jacob's like, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me, okay? And the angel says, for that reason, your name is Israel because you are willing to wrestle with me for the blessing. Here's the amazing thing. The Jews of Jews, the Pharisees, are not like Jacob. A Syrophoenician pagan woman is like Jacob. She's the one that is clinging on and saying, yes, Lord, but I am hanging on. I have nowhere else to go. And this is important for us. I hadn't even thought about this beforehand, but you remember, this is like in John 6 when Jesus teaches another sermon that's not always easy. You got to eat my flesh and you got to drink my blood. And what's the response of the crowd? It's the greatest church anti growth campaign in history. Right there, right? He runs almost all the people off. And Jesus doesn't say, hmm, okay, that strategy didn't work. We'll try something different next time. He turns to the disciples and says, you going to go too? And what's Peter's response? Well, where else would we go? Now get the subtext. I have no idea what that was about, Jesus. <laughs> I'm as utterly confused as everybody else, but I do know this. I have nowhere else to go. If I'm a dog under the table, I'm just waiting for crumbs because I know that is what I need. You are the master who's going to care for me, and I'm going to cling to you no matter what. This woman knows exactly that. She's actually like the the widow that we read in the Old Testament that's from the same area. Because you remember Elijah shows up to her and says, hey, can you make me some food? And what does she say? I'm actually just making, I got just enough flour and oil to make the last cake. I'm going to make it for me and my son, and we're basically going to die. We're going to starve to death. And Elijah says, Listen, the Lord says he'll take care of you. Take the cake and make it for me first. Now, I got to admit, I'd be saying, what, what are you, a televangelist? I mean, stop with this, Elijah, okay? Right? But what does the widow do? Okay, if that's what the Lord says, I will take the last thing I've got and I'll give it to you. And what happens? 
She is sustained throughout the drought. She is sustained throughout the famine. The Pharisees should be that woman, but they're not. But Jesus says, this woman is that woman. She is just like her. She is heard and she is received. And so notice the humble faith receives God's provision. It's a, just a quick epilogue in Mark. You know, you may go home and when she goes home, she finds her child lying on the bed and the demon is gone. She has received what she does because see, Jesus loves her humble, faith-filled answer. He responds to that. So what does this mean for you and for me as we are here? How do we apply this admittedly very difficult text? Let's, let's again you know, you know, recognize this is, a, this is a text that we have to wrestle to, but that's part of it. Remember the parables as Jesus is teaching him. You only understand if you penetrate, if you dig, if you think, if you pray. It's not there on the surface. It requires us to press in because the more we do that, the more it applies in my heart. So I what does this mean for us? Humility and faith. First a word if there's anyone who's not a believer. Here is the reality. If I am not a Christian, my position is I have no right to claim the grace or mercy of God whatsoever. Jonathan Edwards in a very famous sermon, not a typical sermon for him, but centers in the hands of an angry God. He said, like, you're, a, you're like a spider hanging over the flames and they're licking around that web and at any second it could be gone because you are not in covenant with God for his mercy. How, how can you go for one more second in this precarious position? And the fact is, that is God's word to us. If I am not a believer, I'm not alive, I'm dead. If I am not a believer, I have no purchase on the mercy of God. I have no right. Our, our whole culture is proclaiming that, no, 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 in the end, it's just all going to be forgiven. It's not what the word of God says. It discounts the holiness of God. It discounts the awfulness of of sin and here's a reality when jesus comes to us and he reveals our sin and our utter inability to save ourselves we are offended and that is a sickness if we're the woman in in this story we get up and we storm out of the house and we go home to a demonized daughter because we cannot deliver ourselves. We simply cannot. We even in America have come up with a saying, God helps those who help themselves. Because see, I get a little of the credit, Lord. No, God helps those who admit they are helpless and he leaves the rest to help themselves. That's what he actually does. That is not, now let me be clear, because again, a faith, that is not a license to just, you know, uh, I'm not going to work and then God will help me by feeding me. This is not talking about any of that. It is a recognition of my utter bankruptcy to save myself before God. And we do not like that. The evangelist D.L. Moody said this, God sends no one away empty. 
except those who are full of themselves. A full pot's got no room to receive. And so anything in me that wants to cling to my place, my power, my rights, prevents me from receiving from God. And so we have to be like the Syrophoenician woman. That's the tagline this morning. Be like the Syrophoenician woman. She humbly accepted God's verdict and she cried out in faith. Do we do that? I want to I wanna urge you today, whoever you are, whatever you've gone through, you may think I have made my life such a mess. I'm not even sure God's mercy could plumb the depths of my sin. I want to tell you just a crumb out of his table is enough. It's, it's no more challenge for Jesus to save you from your sin than it was to drive that demon away. And notice he didn't even speak an audible word. He just commanded in his mind and it is done. If you are here or you are listening to me and you are not a believer, I urge you, humbly yet with persistent faith, accept God's verdict and receive his mercy. Second thing, most of us are believers, and oh, this is a passage I wish I could say, yes, I went through this painful thing back in 1978, and I've not had to do that anymore. How often do you and I have to walk in humility and faith? Every day. Every day. It is a regular thing. It does not end when I become a Christian. How do I respond to God's humbling word? Because when I read the scripture, it regularly convicts me of my sin. I regularly, if I really penetrate through, and this is why, again, Mark doesn't make it as easy for us. He doesn't even tell us that Jesus mentions our faith. He wants us to wrestle with this. Because the more I wrestle with it, the more my heart is laid bare. And the more it's laid bare, the more I realize, even as a believer, even though I've been walking with Christ now for uh, 45 and a half years, I'm amazed at the stuff that gets revealed in my heart. I'm amazed that though Jesus has cleansed my heart, there is still impurity coming up out of it. To go back to Mark 7, 1 to 22, there, there are things that ought not be there. There are things where I find myself like an idolater, wanting something more than I'm wanting Jesus wanting Jesus to do something for me that is different than what he is telling me he is going to do for me. And thinking somehow it would be better if God would do what I wanted than what he in his wisdom says. And I see some heads shaking, yes, so you know it's not just me, right? Man, this is hard. But as a believer, do we understand that and respond to God's humbling word? How do we respond to humbling circumstances? See, I like it when I'm on the mountaintop. I like when everything is going well. I like it when I'm being exalted, not when I'm being humbled. But one more quote. Bernard of Clairvaux, a uh, monk in the Middle Ages, wrote this. When you perceive that you are being humiliated, look on it as the sign of a sure guarantee that grace is on the way. Mm. Easy to read. That is hard to do. Just as the heart is puffed up with pride before its destruction, pride goes before destruction, 
So it is humiliated before being honored. It is the possession of a joyful and genuine humility that alone enables us to receive grace. Now, this is hard because I've been... I've been wrestling through some things recently. I've got some areas where I've been struggling and I'm trying to trust Jesus in them. How do I respond to those humbling circumstances? With what Bernard is saying here. Do I say, oh joy, I'm being humiliated, that means grace is on the way? Or do I find a verse that says, we can short circuit the humility part, Lord, and let's just get to the grace part. But see, it doesn't work that way. I can't skip to the breads off the table part by just skipping the dog part. It doesn't work that way. They go together. So how am I responding to that? When I'm being humble, do I get discouraged and walk away? Or do I press in by faith? Lord, where else would I go? Where else would I go? And so I want us to think before we come to the Lord's table, is there an area where the Spirit is saying, this is where you're struggling with being humbled right now? And then I want us to think, be like the Syrophoenician woman. Be like this woman who is held up to us. It seemed like everything was stacked against her. But she had humble faith. She saw Jesus' response not as something that pushed her away. She said, here's humiliation. Grace is on the way. She's she's got more theology (laughs) than all the guys who've been walking around with Jesus for a couple of years now. And he sees it and he loves it. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to do. So I want to encourage you as we come to the Lord's table, we're going to come and we're going to confess our sin and our need for God. We're going to receive assurance that we are forgiven. But in particular areas, is there an area where the Lord and the Spirit is pressing in right now and saying, are you receiving this humbling? So we're going to now, we're going to put up on the screen 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And if everybody can stand together, we're going to read from 1 John 1, 5 to 2, 2 together. And notice this pattern here in 1 John 1 as we go through. If we humble ourselves, what happens? We receive grace and mercy. If we deny and refuse to humble ourselves, we're left in our sin. So notice this pattern again and again. Let's confess our sins together. And not just reading words, but confessing who we are before God so we might receive his mercy. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Can you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, as we have done this, as we have confessed our sins and professed our faith in God's righteousness, I now invite everyone who believes the gospel to the Lord's table to receive fresh mercy and grace and strength. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to be passing out the elements now as you get them and they come by. You remember to take out two of them. And I encourage you, let the Spirit speak to you. There may be some area where we're just struggling to hear God's humbling word right now. If so, let's confess it to him and receive grace and strength to help us in our time of need. Lord, we have freely confessed our sins, which humble us before you. We confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and attitude, and action, and our sins warrant your just judgment. On our own, we can do nothing to save ourselves. But we give you thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ, the true bread that was broken for us. And Lord, in taking this faith, we look to him alone for forgiveness and salvation. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, for it is powerful to purify us of all sins. We have openly acknowledged our sins before you, and we thank you that you have promised that you forgive our sins and that, Jesus, you speak to the Father in our defense. What a sure and steady anchor we have in you. And so, Lord, as your people, when we take this cup, we do so in faith, looking to you alone for forgiveness and salvation. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Um, let's stand together. We have a concluding prayer. Lord, we thank you that though we have no right to mercy, you have freely given it to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, in Christ we have not received mere crumbs, but Lord, you have fed our souls with the fullness of your grace. 
Lord, we give you thanks for this. And Lord, now, just as you drove the demon from that woman's daughter, we pray that you would drive the enemy from our lives. Lord, wherever there are areas where we are finding it hard, Lord, we ask that you would break his strongholds, that we might walk in freedom to serve you this week. Lord, we pray that you would enable and empower us so that we might carry this gospel forth to our families and to our friends and even to those who would mistreat or speak evil to us. Lord, we ask that you would do all of this in the name of Jesus. And God's people say, amen. Before the word of benediction, Jer said he had something he wanted to share, and then we will conclude with a benediction. Thank you for that great word, Brett. Um, what I was impressed with as, as I was listening to this message was just how good our Heavenly Father is. And I think that there may be people here who have experienced bad fathers. A good father is interested in having a relationship with his children. A good father will at times, as Jesus demonstrated, as Brett talked about Jacob wrestling with the Lord, an opportunity for us to wrestle with God where it looks like he's pushing us away. And what he's really doing is saying, will you wrestle with me? Because if you want me, I have everything. Just as the father said to the son in the mm -hmm. prodigal story, I was with you and everything I had was yours. God will at times hold us at arm's length, not because he is capricious, not because he is judgmental, but because he's looking for us to be able to examine ourselves and say, do I want that thing or do I want him? Mm -hmm. And what he wants is us. He loves to wrestle with his children because he is a good daddy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes showing how strong he is to his children who forget can better, once they've seen it, rest in his arms. Mm -hmm. If you struggle because you had a, an example of a bad father, I would encourage you to reach out to someone, let them know, confess that, speak that into the light and let God, through the healing power of his Holy Spirit, ministering through his people. Speak to that in your life. A amen. Amen. I do. Th that is uh, excellent, and I do encourage you to, to do that. If there's an area like that, reach out to somebody. Let's walk with one another through these things. So now I encourage you to receive the blessing of God. The Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As you walk with him in humble faith this week, may grace, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. In Christ Jesus, you don't have crumbs from the table. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.